Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown, a podcast for law enforcement, military, and emergency response professionals. Stand by. Where we help you bridge the gap and talk training, tactics, and leadership with the best subject matter experts in the world. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. Here we go. This is Tactical Breakdown. I'm your host, Adam Kanakin. If it is your first time with us, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Today's episode is about undercover work and the lessons that come from that. And my guest on the show is none other than Jay Dobbins. Now, if you don't know Jay, he was an ATF special agent. I believe he was the first law enforcement officer to successfully fully infiltrate the Hells Angels. Amazing guy. Jay is going to share his experience and the knowledge that he has gained over a 20 plus year career in law enforcement as an undercover officer, as an ATF special agent. I want to jump right into it and we'll talk to you after the show. All right. Well, Jay, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on Tactical Breakdown today. You're an extremely busy guy and busy with a lot of different things right now. So thank you, sir, for taking the time. This is funny because I haven't told anybody this, but when I first decided to put this podcast together, I made a list and you were one of the first names on that list. And the reason being is because when you and I first spoke offline, I don't do a lot of non uh, or a lot of fictional reading. I can't I can't get into books if it's not uh, if it's something made up. And your first book, No Angel, was the perfect book for me because it was something that actually happened. It was the true story. And and you went so in-depth into the reality of that situation um, for that undercover operation. But it was just enough of that, I don't want to say Hollywoodized, but it, it had enough of the interesting factor to it that I just couldn't put it down. So I read that thing front to back probably three or four times. So that was the reason why I first wanted to uh, to speak with you. And then I realized that you actually go around all around North America and you speak with agencies, uh, police agencies and law enforcement personnel, sharing your story and sharing what happened through throughout everything, throughout your career and throughout the operation that you spoke to in both of your books. So that was kind of my motivation for having you on. So I just wanted to, to share that with you so that you kind of had a little bit of background as well. Well, thank you. I thank you for having me. And and yes, I, I, what I try to do, th- you know, through these discussions, I don't lecture. I go out when I talk to groups, they're not lectures, they're discussions. Uh, I don't have all the answers to, to be honest with you. I don't know if I have any answers. Uh, what I do have and what my contribution to our, uh, community to the law enforcement community is is telling my story transparently, honestly, uh, with all the mistakes and regrets and uh, shame at times. Um, in addition to the success stories, I think any of us on this job can go out and tell "I love me" hero stories and pat ourselves on the back, and those are wonderful and fabulous, and and people are entertained by them. But I think we actually get more from. Uh, some of the heartache and and the hard stories uh, than we do from the glorious ones. Yeah, absolutely. And on that, I wanted to uh, give you the chance to to share your story. And I think it's really interesting and it'll set the, the tone and the context for our interview today. Um, when you first joined uh, with the ATF 
and that the first things that have I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spoil anything, so I'll let you all you tell the story. But um, can you share a little bit about how you got into uh, federal law enforcement and your first uh, your first couple assignments and what happened? I did. I you know as a kid, as a young man, um, I always believed I was going to be a professional football player. I had a very good uh, college football career. And when it came time to make that move, to make that transition from college professionally, um, my uh, confidence was there. My preparation was there. But the reality of it was that I was not good enough. I was not uh, skilled enough. Um, I had always succeeded as a football player through uh, hard work and playing reckless and playing passionately and playing dangerously at times. And that's not enough to play professionally, to make a living doing it, to earn money as a football player. You have to have some talent mixed in there too. And uh, that was hard as a young man because um, my goals changed uh, almost overnight. Uh, But luckily for all of us, our, our goals and our objectives for what we want out of life and who we want to be uh, they can change and they can morph. You know, if they didn't, um, every adult man uh, or woman out there would be an astronaut or a princess. Because at some point in life, that's what we dreamed about doing. But our goals change and, and mine change. Mine transitioned from being a football player, uh, almost left without any direction and not knowing what to do and morphing or evolving into law enforcement. And um, as hokey as it sounds, my inspiration actually came from Hollywood. Um, The television show Miami Vice was very popular at this transition point in my life in the mid 80s. And we had never seen a show like that on television um, or in the movies for that matter. All the police uh, uh, entertainment had been very procedural. It had been uh, Dragnet, um, Adam-12, Kojak, those types of procedural type uh, traditional investigative uh, docudramas. And then Miami Vice shows up and Sonny Crockett is rolling around South beach and he's driving a Lamborghini and he's wearing Hugo boss suits and he's meeting these kingpins at these glamorous mansions and all the sexiness that uh, was portrayed in that show intrigued me. And I felt like, man, I, you know, I can do this. I can be Sonny Crockett. Now through life's experiences and a career um, that is not, was not the job that I experienced. Um, but it's what, uh, it's what caught my eye. It's what made me believe that, uh, that was my new challenge. When you first thought about law enforcement and, and hearing your story there, you always knew that you wanted to get into undercover work. Is that right? From the very beginning, I knew that I wanted to at least try, um, my hand at undercover work. Uh, that's what intrigued me. That's what I felt fit my personality and my character traits. And I like, you know, I didn't know, I didn't have any law enforcement experience. I didn't know that I'd be any good at it, but I wanted to try. 
And I think if, if I look back on the big picture of my career, to be quite honest, I don't know that I was good or exceptional at anything, at any aspect of this job. What I was good at was I was always willing to try. I was always willing to raise my hand and, and overcome that fear of failure, overcome the fear of embarrassment and have a willingness to try. And so that, that's what led me down that path. When you first got into uh, law enforcement and you got into and were given your first undercover assignment, what was that assignment? My first actual undercover assignment, like, like most of us out there, was pretty mundane. Um, we train. We go through our academies. We do field operations training. At ATF, we have a, uh, a short block on undercover work that exposes you to uh, some of the risks, some of the perils, some of the techniques. Uh, but like most of us, for undercover work, it's, it's trial by fire. You have to just get out there and and get on the street and engage and then slowly taking baby steps figure it out see what works see what doesn't work um, and you know and so so my path into that world was pretty much like most everyone else's uh, like working as a as a partner to some experienced UCs and then taking steps out on my own and making small buys, making small street buys of narcotics and guns and, and then letting that grow. And as you grow in the profession, and, and I've never been able to figure this out for myself, I don't know if comfort or confidence came first or second for me, but I definitely believe they're tied together in undercover work. I think that we are either comfortable in the environment we're working in and then that allows us to exude confidence or we're self-confident in who we are and our cover and what our mission is. And then that allows us to present ourselves comfortably. Um, for me, I've never been able to put my finger on which one came first or second, but I do believe they're tied together. Is that going to be a combination of just natural talent, I guess, and then learned experiences for younger officers or people that are in, in those roles right now is that if somebody is a new police officer or new to law enforcement or aspiring to law enforcement and they're like, I, and they have the same thought as you is I want to get into undercover work. What traits do you think they need to have inherently to even have that as a possibility moving forward? Well, to go back a little bit in the conversation, I think you have to have a willingness. It's not for everybody. Uh, no agency that I've ever heard of is going to force anyone into an undercover assignment. You have to be willing. The, the, the world that you inhabit, again, the comfort and confidence, um, that's, I think, derived from a couple different things. Uh, I know uh, I, that there's two uh, like core categories that I think all of us fit into. There's that actor who basically like puts on, for lack of better terms, a costume, whatever uh, wardrobe uh, that, that he or she wears to feel comfortable and confident in the environment they're working in. That actor like almost puts on that costume and then inherits that role. 
Um, I was never good at that. I was, for me, it was what you see is what you get. Um, I, I'm not uh, all that different in an undercover assignment than I am in real life. Um, I talk to people the same way. I communicate the same way. Um, and so, like, I guess for me, if you like me in real life, you'd probably, if you like Jay Dobbins, you'd probably like Jay Bird Davis. If you don't like Jay Dobbins, if you don't get along with him, if he offends you or uh, uh you you don't have a good vibe with them, then you wouldn't have a good vibe with Jay Bird Davis either because they're pretty much one in the same. You know, I'm, I'm really excited that you brought that up because a lot of people that are going to be listening to this when, when they do their research back and, or when after this podcast, they, they look it up and they find out exactly what you did um, and, and the context around, you know, no angel and catching hell and they hear what, role you took and how far in you went and how far down the rabbit hole you went on your assignment. And then they hear, this is, this is you, the soft-spoken, uh, courteous, humble guy that they're, they're listening to is the same person that was able to do all of these things. Can you maybe just, can we do a quick summary? Um, I know that's almost impossible to ask, but just a, a kind of a, maybe an abridged version of what, uh, Operation Black Biscuit was, just so for everybody listening that can have a little bit more context. Operation Black Biscuit was uh, an investigation, a covert investigation into the Hells Angels motorcycle gang, uh, primarily in Arizona, but our investigation went well beyond our borders. It went into California and Nevada. Um, it went as far south as Tijuana, Mexico. It went as far east as uh, New York City um, and kind of everywhere in between. And the Hells Angels, at the time of this investigation, we ran uh, Operation Black Biscuit from 2001 to 2003, were operating uh, almost with impunity, and their violence was escalating and spilling into the public and, 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 and touching the common man. And uh, the outlaw biker world and ATF are almost a hand and glove fit. Um, the biker world is driven by uh, violence. It's driven by firearms, explosives, narcotics, which all fit into uh, the jurisdiction and the effort and energy of ATF. And so it was the perfect cowboys and Indians. It was the perfect cat and mouse mix. I think that's why ATF has had uh, pretty much unprecedented success working on outlaw biker gangs is because just what they do and the lifestyle they live fits so perfectly with the the jurisdiction and the laws that ATF enforces. I don't want to use incorrect terminology here, but you were able to, you were the first, correct me if I'm wrong, but you were the first law enforcement officer to infiltrate the Hells Angels as far as you had. Is that correct? Yes, I believe so. And I, I believe there were some others that uh, there's others over the course of time, over history that have made runs at them. Um, they're, they're extremely, extremely difficult to get inside their wire. Uh, they're very well insulated. Um, those of us, you know, on the outside, uh, those of us in the law enforcement game, 
um, we, we have an education, you know, we, we have training where, uh, for lack of better terms to, to make it kind of elementary, we become book smart. Um, the hell's angels aren't necessarily book smart, but they are street smart. These guys have their PhDs in violence and intimidation and the street. And, um, when in an undercover role, um, they're not playing on our field. We are playing on their field. So you have to learn to thrive and survive and uh, even just exist on their terms. Uh, they're the home team. Um, they're not playing by our rules. They're playing by their rules. I wanted to give everybody a little bit of context there. So thank you for that. And the reason being is because I wanted to have a conversation from your perspective, and I know these are things that you speak to other officers and agencies about, but there's there's a real world and there's there's real consequences to emotionally, physically, um, you know, spiritually, everything, when you immerse yourself into those roles as an undercover agent and and other officers as well. I mean, it's not just people that are in undercover work, but there's there's a real toll to to what you do and i know that you speak um i mean a lot of the times that you go out and you do your speaking engagements it's it's revolving around that so can we can we dive into that a little bit can we start peeling back the layers on what type or what things can happen when you invest yourself into these types of positions sure as uh, an undercover um i would not uh, insult your audience. I do not insult the, the people that I uh, speak at, the events I speak at, by telling people how to buy drugs, how to buy guns, how to buy bombs, how to run a home invasion case, how to run a murder for hire case, um, even how to uh, conduct an infiltration. Um, I know dozens and dozens of agents and officers who are better undercover operatives uh, than I was. I speak uh, to mindset, to the survival instincts, uh, to what it takes mentally and emotionally to take on these assignments. And, uh, you know, from my personal experiences, some of the, some of the downfalls and some of the regrets and the grief and the shame that are created by them, um, you know, Good judgment comes from experience. Experience comes from bad judgment. Um, that's the lessons learned that we have uh, gained over the course of law enforcement history. There's a reason why we no longer walk into hotel rooms with suspects with suitcases full of money because we've found through those lessons learned that that's, that's a bad situation to create. Um, there's a reason why undercovers, when we, uh, when our plans work out as planned, um, are normally not on the point for the arrests of the suspects they've investigated. That's why we bring in SWAT teams. That's why we bring in uniform presence to make arrests on undercover operations because we define who's present, that uniform police present um, 
helps avoid suspect confusion as to like, who's this guy arresting me? Oh no, this is the cops. I know what's going down versus a guy they've been dealing with as a criminal for an extended period of time and misconstruing that arrest as a ripoff. Um, all those things. And there's thousands of those examples of those lessons learned. Um, for me personally, and it's just, it's probably my personality. It's probably my stubbornness. Um, wisdom is always something that came to me right after I needed it. I got smart about something right after I should have been smart about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've, I've been the same boat. It's always that uh, day late and a buck short. When we talk about your career as a whole, what were your greatest regrets when it came to your career? You know, that's such a good question for me. And it's such an easy question for me. I don't have to think about that answer. I don't have to sort through uh, mistakes and try to pick which one wins. My biggest regret, my biggest failure, um, my biggest embarrassment, my biggest humiliation is that I uh, became so self-absorbed in my job. I became so uh, consumed in my undercover role that that job went from being what I did and it became who I was. And in the process, I abandoned and betrayed uh, my own family, my wife and my kids in exchange for professional success, like chasing some legacy, trying to be Donnie Brasco part two, trying to be the super cop, uh, chasing, uh, you know, this self-imposed hero syndrome where I felt like it was my responsibility to get toe to toe with every predator out there and see what I could do. Um, and, 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 and that that's not, I'm not saying that that is not, uh, an improper objective. I think all of us who are given, uh, a badge and a gun, it's a great honor. And with it comes a lot of pressure because the people in our communities are asking us to stand up on their behalf against the thugs and the predators who are looking to take advantage of the good and innocent people who simply want to live a safe and peaceful life. That's a huge responsibility. But I so internalized that, that, man, I put in a massive, massive amount on, uh, of battle damage on my family. Uh, to the point that, to be quite honest, the people that loved me the most, the people that supported me the hardest, turned out to be the ones that I treated the shittiest. So when you say, what's your re- what's your biggest regret? It's that. It's what I did to my family in exchange for this profession. It sounds almost like it was a catch-22 when, when you explained that, you know, there's two types of, two types of people in, that fill two different roles, one being the actor and the other person who just lives the role. And you identified that you, you weren't the actor and that you had to invest yourself and become that person. So in doing so, essentially you, you kind of led yourself right into the situation that you got put in. And I, I, 
is there anything you think when you look back on everything, is there anything that you could have changed or is it, was it just kind of a byproduct of the situation you were in? Yeah, I, I think there's all kinds of things that you could have changed. I think, or I could have changed. Yeah, I think it's easy for any of us to lay blame, to point fingers. Um, I would love to have someone to blame for the heartache in my life. I would love to be able to point a finger at someone or a situation and say, this is your fault. These bad things happened to me because of you. I can't do that. Um, I'd be counterfeit. I would be lying to your audience if I did that. The decisions I made were mine. I have to own them. Um, no one held a gun to my head and made me do this job. No one made me take the assignments I, I, I took. No one uh, forced me to be as aggressive or go all in to the extent that I did. Those were my choices. Uh, you know, like a simple story. Um, I would, I would go out on these long-term operations and be smoking and joking and, and running with suspects. And then I'd come back home and my wife told me, you cannot come back to this house after being gone for an extended period of time and treat us like we're your street suspects. And then in my self-defense, my response was, I'm not a light switch. I can't turn this on and off. People who treat what I do for a living as a hobby, they end up dead. I have to be all in. And then her response to that was, well, when you come to this house, you better install a damn dimmer switch and turn that down or don't come home. Hmm. You know, it's interesting when I, that, that was a part of your, your second book in catching hell. And you had that in there. One of one of the things that I thought of when I read that was at face value, when people look at law enforcement or even when law enforcement officers look at assignments, usually everybody, when you think of repercussions and you think of damages, you think of, you know, physical, you think of, can I get shot? Can I get killed? Is there going to be somebody who wants to kill me? Is there going to be a, you know, is somebody going to put a hit out for me? Um, and I know those are all things that have that have happened throughout your career. And I think um, you had mentioned that there's probably still contracts out for you, um, whether or not anyone's ever going to even action on those is is suspect. But there's not a lot of attention drawn to what happens after the assignment, after your shift is done, after the case gets resolved. And now you have to go back into living that normal life with your family and your friends and your colleagues and that's probably the, the most difficult part of, of the whole thing. Is that right? Well, yeah. And I, and I think it goes well beyond undercover work in our profession. Um, when you look at the number of police suicides that, that take place today, when you look at the number of lawmen who have uh, an alcohol problem, an addiction problem, a PTSD problem. Uh, those problems are not individual problems. Those problems become family problems. They become friend problems. Uh, they're not uh, isolated to undercover operators. Um, the amount of police suicides in the world today is epidemic. It's, it's frightening. It's catastrophic. And those 
come from a, a cumulative career of doing things and seeing things and hearing things and experiencing things that we don't want anybody else to have to ever hear or see or experience. Um, and that's why I have so much love and admiration and respect uh, for the men and women out there in our law enforcement community, because they know that's coming. They know what they're going to experience on any given day. And their alarm clock goes off and they put their feet on the ground and they kiss their husbands and wives and their kids goodbye. And they walk out into the middle of that, knowing that there's no guarantee they're going to come home. And they're, you know, that saying, um, you know, the, uh, the underpaid uh, doing the unthinkable uh, for the ungrateful, they show up every day to work and do it. And not many people have that in them and not many people can understand it. I had a uh, very, very deep and uh, I don't want to say disturbing, but conversation with uh, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Robert Perkins yesterday. And in that, we discussed that as of July 5th, uh, 2019, there was 102 um, suicides committed by law enforcement officers in the United States alone. So that and, and the numbers are stagnant. And for veterans, it was in the thousands, almost 4,000. Um, and one of the purposes for this podcast is, I mean, it's... It, we do talk about all the different things. We talk about firearms training. We're talking about undercover work here. and But mental health is always that, that underlying issue um, that needs to always be brought to the forefront. So thank you so much for, for bringing that up. You know what it is? It's the dirty little secret that no one wants to talk about. Um, yep. We don't want to admit that we have those problems. We uh, tend to turn our back from the problems when we see them. And uh, we have to change that. Um, I, I went down that path where I felt like I was alone, that no one understood, that there was no one to talk to, and there was no one to help me. Um, uh, very fortunately for me, I survived that. Um, but that's why I open up. Um, that's why I make myself uh, accessible and available. Because if someone out there in our community, or not even in the law enforcement community, anybody for that matter, is feeling that way, um, I now know and have contact and access into resources that can help you, um, that can, that can give you some peace, um, where, you know, there was a point in my life where I, I didn't think anything was available and I didn't think anyone cared. What would you, if, if you had one message that you wanted to give to a law enforcement officer, whether they were just starting out or even a senior member, what message or bits of information and knowledge would you impart on them if you had the ear of, of everybody? Um, well, I, I think I can break it down into two parts. Um, the first is, you know, back to that mindset uh, that we talked about that I discuss and that as a lawman, if you are not mentally and emotionally prepared to have violence used against you, and then if you are not equally prepared to use uh, violence or a greater amount of violence uh, to contain that situation and cap off that situation and control it, then you know what? Today's a good day to go back to school or become an accountant or go sell insurance 
um, or paint houses or do any number of the millions of honorable ways, uh, professions out there to earn a living. But if you're not prepared to have violence used against you and then use an equal or greater amount of violence to contain that situation, this is not the job for you. Um, and that's harsh. And there's people that uh, would feel that that is politically incorrect. Um, there's people that would attack that. Um, but I stand by it um, because it's open season on lawmen out there. And um, you have to be mentally and emotionally prepared for it every day. Every day when you, when you leave the house and go to work, you have to be prepared for it. The other piece of advice would be, uh, and again, these are based solely on personal experiences and, and other things I've witnessed it witnessed, but mainly on personal experiences. The second piece of advice was never, uh, miss a chance, never forget to love and hug and kiss, uh, your family, your wife and your husband and your kids and your parents and your friends and tell them that you love them. Um, uh, because we get wrapped up and consumed with dealing with um, some really sour elements of society and culture. Um, and, and don't let that eat you alive. Uh, continually find ways to remind yourself that there's good and innocent people out there who love you and who you're protecting and who do appreciate uh, the sacrifices you make. Those are two things that you know, the first point about being willing to use violence and have violence used against you and, and understanding that is applicable to law enforcement, but it's also applicable to any first responder. Um, I'm sure we're, you're, we're both well aware of multiple situations where, you know, a paramedic shows up to a call and, you know, th they put themselves almost at more risk uh, some of the time than uh, some of the law enforcement officers because they're sometimes the first on the scene, right? So. No doubt. Absolutely. Those first responders out there, I'll, I'll tell you what, um, um, I have so much respect uh, for those in the uh, fire community, um, the, those EMS officers, uh, the medical staffs, um, what they do, what they see, what they experience. Um, I tell you what, I've, I've been in some uh, treacherous and perilous uh, situations as a law enforcement officer. I, I have no interest in running into a burning building. Um, I, uh, I do not like gore. I do not like uh, human uh, physical trauma. And, and what those people see and deal with and race towards um, on a daily basis, man, my hat's off to them because they do a job uh, that I couldn't do. I do what I can to defend the first responders out there in the world. I do what I can to to defend the law enforcement profession, but it's almost like you become the enemy when you speak up for law enforcement um, because people want to say, well, uh, you're corrupt and you're overly violent and, and they want to put this gigantic umbrella over the entire profession based on um, a few skewed events um, that no one would agree with. No lawman would agree with no lawman would support. Um, the bottom line is, for any public servant, 90% um, of the people out there don't care about what your problems are, and the other 10% are happy you have them. Um, so just go to work. Do the best you can. Um, raise the bar. 
raise the standards of uh, professionalism and ethics and morals uh, to the highest level possible, and then look yourself in the mirror and be satisfied that that you're doing all you can. Yep, absolutely. It's it's. I had somebody, and I I don't want to misquote, so I'm not going to say any names, but I believe I had somebody tell me once that if you think of it this way, there's I don't know how many active police officers or law enforcement officers there in the U.S. right now. Probably seven hundred, eight hundred thousand, something like that, if not more. If you look at a population as a whole and you say, you know, 99 out of 100 people are good and there's always that one bad apple. Well, if you take that, if you take that same perspective and you put it into just the law enforcement profession, you're going to have 6,000 to 9,000 people that are bad apples. And that's just and that's just I mean, and that's generalizing it to the to the nth degree. But there's. There's always going to be those types of people that that sneak into those types of professions. And like you said, it's always the it's never the the positive situation that gets portrayed in media. That's not the way media works, right? Media is fear mongering. We know that. And this isn't a this isn't a political uh, podcast and I'm not going to get into that. But it's always a negative. There's always a negative connotation to it because that's what draws people in. Of course, and, when there's I, a uh, when there's a uh, a tragic event, whether it be uh, a mistake, whether it be circumstance, whether it be intentional, um, the media wants to jump on that, and what they ignore is the hundreds of thousands of positive contacts that uh, both criminals and innocent civilians have with law enforcement every single day that are resolved. Uh, peacefully and safely. Um, there's no lawman that I know, no good lawman that I know that uh, wouldn't do everything within his power to eliminate um, corruption, to eliminate racism, to eliminate these uh, elements of uh, society that, that uh, affect every profession. Um, but no good cop wants that in our world. No good cop is willing to tolerate that in our world. Yeah. Well, I first of all, I want to say thank you so much for for sharing all that with us. And I think those are amazing points that are actionable that people can take with them when it comes to dealing with this line of work and some tools that are not even tools, but just some thoughts that they can take with them about spending more time with friends and family and and realizing that there is some there is things that are more important than, than the job and your numbers and in hitting your quotas and your arrests. But what I, what I want to get into now is because we talked about the, not, I want to say it's negative stuff, but the more, the more serious stuff I want to hear from you with everything that you've gone through in your career. What is some of the most, what are you most proud of doing? What are some of those stories that you're kind of just like, you love telling that this is, you know, this was a great, bus that we made, or this was a great case that we made, or this was a success that I felt? Well, I'll tell you, that's a great question. And looking at it now, you know, from that 30,000 foot view, looking down on that career, I'll tell you this. And, and I mentioned this earlier. I think anybody on this job has those glory, glory stories, those I love me, pat myself on the back stories. Um, 
of arrests and seizures and uh, convictions and car chases and foot chases and shootouts and all those things, right? Um, when you're on the job long enough, you acquire those. Um, now, having been removed from it and looking back, I'll tell you what I really love is the people that I was privileged to work with. Uh, when I look back on my partners, when I look back on uh, on my career, it comes back to those people, those human beings that I was uh, privileged to walk alongside and to rub shoulders with. And so that was the true blessing of my career is, is who I met and who I worked with more so than actually what I did um, to feed more directly to your question, um, and um, I, I think you know this, maybe not everybody in your audience does, you know, I got hired on a Monday. I got sworn in and signed my paperwork on a Monday without ever having gone to academy or had any training. On a Thursday, four days later, I ended up uh, at an arrest uh, event where um, I ultimately, I was taken hostage. Um, a suspect shot me in the back the bullet went through my lung. It narrowly missed my heart. It exited my chest. And four days on the job, I was lying in the garbage and dog shit of a trailer park, bleeding to death. The blood was coming out of my chest like you were holding your thumb over the end of a garden hose, squirting out into the dirt. And... I just, I like it, 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 with the feds, we get paid every two weeks. I hadn't even gotten a paycheck yet. I was bleeding to death and I hadn't gotten paid yet. It, it was a test drive. I comped them that one. Um, so I'm, I'm recovering. I'm in the hospital and there um, are these attorneys that are lining up to speak to me and they're all, they have the same pitch. Hey kid, you know what a million dollars looks like? You know, I didn't know what a million dollars looks like. I, I, I grew up in a blue collar house. My dad was a carpenter. My dad pounded nails for 50 years of his life. My mom was a house cleaner. My mom scrubbed people's toilets for a living that didn't want to scrub their own toilets. I didn't know what a million dollars or $5 million looked like. I didn't know what it meant. I didn't even know what it looked like physically. And all I could think of was get out. I'm not interested in trying to get a settlement from my agency. I'm not interested in trying to like become a millionaire and retire um, after a week on the job. Man, I was bulletproof. I just had a bullet go through my chest. I was invincible. I just wanted to get back to work and try again and see if I could be better and do it better. Hmm. That sounds like a hell of a first day at work story. <laughs> very, uh, very traumatic way you know, to start a career. Um, but you know what, like, like that and all the other events, all the, all the other dramatic and violent and, and, um, perilous events over the course of 27 years, uh, which started with that and included other shootings. I was shot again a year later and run over by a car during an undercover machine gun deal. Um, it, all kinds of craziness. Um, in the end, when I came on the job and I had this uh, false illusion of this Miami Vice illusion of trying to be Sonny Crockett, when I realized that's not how it is, when I realized, man, I'm not wearing a Hugo Boss suit to work. I'm wearing 
cut off camos and a wife beater t-shirt and flip-flops. I'm not driving a Lamborghini. I'm driving an 82 Malibu. Um, you know, these people out there, they're not sexy and glamorous drug dealers. They're like, you know, they're, 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 they're living treacherous lives. Uh, the, you know, that, that ton of cocaine that was sitting on some barge in a container out in the Harbor of Miami that Sonny Crockett was trying to negotiate for it was an eight ball, uh, that was so cut with baby laxative, you'd shit before you'd get high off of it. You know, those glamorous models that were on TV that were bringing Sonny the pomegranate martinis and sitting on his lap and he's smoking and joking. And it's like some skank with like three teeth in her head and tits like sweat socks with rocks in the toes. And when I realized what it really was, that it wasn't this fictional Hollywood illusion, I loved it. And I still loved it. I loved every day of it. I even loved it on the bad days. I loved it on the days when I failed. I'd finish that day and say, man, I screwed up today. I wasn't very good, but I'm going to try again tomorrow and I'm going to be amazing. Um, because uh, of that of that mantra that I talked about earlier, it was a huge privilege for me to take a stand against the predators in the communities I worked in on behalf of the good and innocent people who just wanted to live a peaceful, safe life. I love that. If there was ever an example of mindset, I think, uh, I think you take the cake. Uh, I've, I've heard a lot of stories, a lot of professional athletes, a lot of people in this profession and, uh, just, just your story alone where, you know, shot multiple times and every time you just come back more excited to get back to work. And when you find out that this glamorous life that you envisioned is the complete opposite, you're like, shit, yeah, this is even better than I thought. I mean, I feel like you have such a positive attitude and outlook that I think that's probably what made you so successful was that you always, you always bought into it 110%. I I think you have to on this job. This job will beat you down. Uh, what we do for a living will beat you down. It will frustrate you. It will disgust you at times. If you can't find the good in it, man, you're going to have a miserable life. And I didn't want to go to work every day being miserable. I wanted to be excited. I wanted to be happy. Even though I was going into some terrible circumstances, I wanted to be positive about it. If you can't, We spend so much time at work. If you can't love what you're doing, if you can't enjoy what you're doing, then find something else to do. We just simply spend too much time professionally on our job to not love it. And, and for me, money had nothing to do with it. No one out there, and, and, and you and your audience will nod their head to this, no one ever took a badge or a gun thinking that they were going to get rich or famous. Um, and if you did, man, uh, slap yourself in the face because it ain't going to happen. On that point, I wanted to ask you, and uh, this is more of uh, <laughs> not so uh, not so much for the audience, but for for me personally, because I have the chance. I always thought that when you when No Angel came out, when you wrote that book and the story that was told, I was a hundred percent certain that that was going to be made into a movie. Is that ever happening? You know, struggling to. Um... It's been off and on and off again and off again and on again and on again. Uh, Hollywood is a trippy place, man. It is, uh, it, you know, I, I've had uh, high hopes. I've We've been at the point where it was on the verge of 
going into production. And then it's been at points where like, man, it's not going to happen. And, um, I've learned to just, uh, go with the flow. Um, Hollywood is, is, uh, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, they entertain us. They make us laugh. They make us cry. They make us think, um, I'm a big movie buff. I love movies, but man, it is, it is also a, a treacherous place to try to survive in. And it is, uh, it's, it's tough. It's, it's a, it's a very, very hard world to find success in. And those that do are, man, I, I think there's a combination of talent and, and, and luck. Um, you know, like not all that different than sports, really. I mentioned that sports story early in it. Like you have to be more than talented. You have to have some luck too. And the stars need to line up for you. And so far uh, for the no angel story, in Hollywood, those stars just haven't lined up yet, but we're, we're trying. Yeah, I was, I mean, with the popularity of, of shows like Sons of Anarchy, there's an appeal, almost like um, there's, there's a reason why people get drawn into that lifestyle. And I think when shows like Sons of Anarchy come out, it kind of gives people that, it feels like they get a sneak peek into that lifestyle, right? And it's like, these are the things that we don't get to see. And as much as, I mean... One of the things that I want to do is uh, hopefully we can get you back on and we can actually uh, talk uh, about the how realistic those types of shows are. But is that is that something that you think is a reason why people buy into those things so much? Because that's it's, you know, I get the girls, I get the drugs, I get the money. I it's it's I get to live and do whatever I want. Those are those are the things that people think of when they think of, oh, I'm going to be in a gang. Right. Of course. I think that's the beauty of Hollywood. I think that's I think that's why we like movies. I think that's why we like uh, that type of entertainment is because when done right, uh, when done with the right level of authenticity, it allows us to go into worlds. Those movies allow us to go into worlds uh, that we normally wouldn't go into. Um, we get to follow uh, Joe Pistone as he inherits this role of Donnie Brasco and and makes his way through the mob. Uh, you know, like, like we're intrigued by that because very few of us ever get to uh, experience something like that. But over the course of two hours, you know, Johnny Depp is going to play Joe Pistone playing Donnie Brasco and show us how he did it. Mm-hmm. You do. There are movies that, and shows that jump out at you. Um, and, and this is, was a super big quit. Like I was telling you, I was, I was looking through all your stuff prior to this interview and, and just to get dive even deeper. And I hadn't realized how much work you had done in Hollywood. And a year or so ago, my, a really good friend of mine who works in law enforcement sent me a message was like, dude, you got to check out this movie on Netflix called Den of Thieves. And I was like, okay, yeah, I'll check it out. I was like, oh yeah, Gerard Butler looks good. I mean, I'll try it out. And I watched it and I was drawn into it immediately. And I was like, holy hell, this is, this is actually really, really good. It, it seems like they're actually catching the the reality of of this type of situation and then in researching you i realized that you were the consultant <laughs> on that movie which, which makes, a lot, makes a lot of sense yeah i'll tell you a backstory to that the credit for that goes to the writer and director of that film uh, a gentleman named christian gudegast who's a friend of mine who is uh authenticity is hugely important to him in his stories um I wasn't hired for that job because uh, 
I was the best at anything on the profession. I was hired on that job because I had a relationship with Christian and he knew that I would shoot straight with him and, and try to maintain a baseline of authenticity. So during the script preparation, during the actor training, uh, during the filming on set, if I saw something that this didn't look right, it didn't smell right. Christian always invited me to tap him on the shoulder and say, dude, man, we wouldn't say that. We wouldn't do that. Um, uh, people out there that do this for a living are going to look at that and think that if you perform it that way, it's going to be hokey. Um, and he was always uh, very open to making adjustments because authenticity was so important to him. He wanted people out there in cop land to watch that film and say, man, Ooh, those guys got it right, right there. Um, so if, so if you, or if anybody else in the audience saw that and said, man, that looked just right, that looked perfect. Um, the true credit goes to Christian Gudegast. It goes to, uh, uh, the actors who performed it, but that's flattering to me because I had a hand in trying to guide that in the right direction. Yeah, there's, it was, I mean, there was a lot of scenes, but one specifically was uh, in a hotel room where basically their team was in the hotel room and they had brought the guy in and they had the the ladies in there and the the booze and they were sitting there drinking and and you could tell it's like this this seems a lot more realistic to how this situation would be staged and played out in real life than the way I've seen it done in other because that was the first time I've ever seen it played out like that in a movie and uh, well and that again uh i have to give my hats off to christian gudegast and the actors because they actually uh uh wrote and directed and then delivered those performances but that scene that you mentioned is based on an authentic actual event that scene took place in real life in an undercover environment um nearly identical to the way it was performed and filmed. Um, and that's why it's so believable. That's why people like that scene. That's why people remember that scene because it's legit. Yeah. That's, and that's, I think you're you hit you nail on the head there. It's when the authenticity is there. Um, there's a lot, of, it's, it's funny because there are so many people now that are speaking out experts that when a, you know, a show comes out and it's on, you know, something like a, a seal team or, you know, special operations or policing. And there's people that are because of social media that call it out. It's like, that's not how you do, you know, that's not how you clear a room. You know, it's, it's almost comical now when, because there's so many people out there that are available to consult. It's almost comical when a movie comes out and the tactics are completely off and it, it sticks out like a sore thumb. Well, I'll tell you what was also interesting about, you know, the preparation for that is that in that story, this good guy, bad guy story, there's uh, this group of plainclothes cops ch chasing this group of uh, ex-military uh, sophisticated bank robbers. Um, even in the battle scenes, even in the gunfights, um, the trained eye will notice the nuanced differences. Um the, the, the military, the bad guy side of the story, these ex-military guys were trained by a uh, former, former uh, SAS operative who gave them like 
like highly detailed, refined training tactics as to how a military man would handle his weapon, how they would move, how they would react. And then on the other side, you have this cop crew who is less refined. They're less sophisticated. They're less perfect in, in, in how they uh, are, are engaged in a gunfight. And, and that's, that's the truth. You take special forces guys who train on that all day long, and that's all they do. They're very proficient. Then you take cops out here. Now, we don't train every day in gunfights. We don't train every day uh, unless you're on a SWAT team as a special forces operator. And so the differences, um, even to the untrained eye, but but to the trained eye, those nuanced differences can be seen. Absolutely. And it's uh, anyway, I, I wanted to bring that up because uh, I thought that was a really interesting uh, thing that I kind of found out, stumbled upon. And you were uh, so involved with it. I thought it was really, really cool. What else is uh, I want to I want to talk about your books in a second here. But what else is coming up in the life of uh, Jay Dobbins? What do you have going on in the near future here? Well, in the immediate future, I have football practice this afternoon. I coach high school football. I've uh, I've done that. Uh, I've coached youth sports for 25 years, but I've been a high school football coach for the last 10 years and absolutely love it. Um, love being around the kids, love trying to teach them uh, about life um, and about all those elements of life through football. It's It's much bigger than football for me. And to be honest with you, I get way more out of those kids than I can ever give back to them, to be quite honest. it's um, I coach, um, to be blunt, I coach for selfish reasons because I get so much out of it. I get so much, so much satisfaction from those kids. Seeing a kid who struggles, seeing a kid who doesn't feel like he fits in, seeing a kid who uh, uh, can take uh, – the, his participation in a team sport like football and use that to help him grow socially and become confident um, and achieve all those things well beyond blocking and tackling and running and catching um, are so important um, and so satisfying for me. Um, I, you know, like I said, I do, uh, I speak at law enforcement events. I speak at corporate events occasionally Um those, I, you know, I have a list of those coming and I, I thoroughly enjoy that. Um, and, and, and if I didn't say it earlier, um, I think it's worth saying, um, by, by making these, these presentations at, to these law enforcement groups, it's all I have left to offer our, our profession. I'm not out there on the point anymore. I'm not the guy who's investigating cases. All I have to offer is, is my story and the mistakes and the guilt and the shame and the regret, um, in addition to some of the successes and, and to tell it transparently. Um, and I, and I think when people see my presentation, they're actually shocked by where it goes because it's not a hero story. Um, I do not tell, uh, my story. I don't believe it's a hero story. I don't try to tell it as a hero story. I don't, I'm not counterfeit about it. Um, I'm very brutally honest. Um, so, you know, between my coaching, between uh, like my public speaking and then uh, my family and like all of us out there trying to pay bills, trying to maintain a house, uh, uh, trying to deal with all the things that all of us deal with in our personal lives, regardless of what you do for a living. Man, I'm as busy today as I was, you know, years ago 
uh, when I was still carrying a badge and a gun. Do you think that's important that when you come out of um, when you come out of a profession like law enforcement or emergency response or in the military, do you think that's important to to find something that brings you that same level of joy and excitement in a civilian way than it did when you had a uniform on? And the reason I ask is because I can tell just just by hearing your answer, you just your your tone, your pitch, your your excitement level changed when you started talking about coaching football. And I can tell that that is something that you are so passionate about and not even probably more passionate about than sharing, you know, all this, the law enforcement stuff. It's just, it's, it's one of those things. And do you think that's important that people find something like that? Well, yeah, you know, and like it, it, looking at myself, honestly, um, having had uh, like an exceptional college career, having had the opportunity to play professionally, having, you know, had a short professional career uh, in Canada, having had a short professional career in the old USFL. Um, I'm not the best football coach out there. I'm not the smartest guy out there. Um, I just love being around the kids. I love taking what I do know and what I do have and trying to translate it to them and then watching them embrace it and then use it. Um, the same thing goes for, you know, when I'm speaking to uh, a, a law enforcement audience, just taking what I have and see, watching people embrace it. I don't have all the answers. Um, I don't even know if I have any of the answers, to be quite honest with you. Um, what I have is my experiences. Um, I can tell you um, when I did things right and, and how it turned out. And I can tell you, more importantly, when I did things wrong and how it turned out. And that is the key is to not uh, shy away from the mistakes because I don't want anybody to have to go out there and reinvent the wheel. Like if you're going to make this mistake, Hey, I already made it. Let me tell you how it turns out. It's not very good. So let's try something else. But yes, I think it's hugely important. I think for any of us, no matter what profession you're in, if you ever get to a point in your life, will you think the greatest achievement that is, is a part of your life is behind you? Oh man, you're in trouble. We always have to believe that there's something bigger and better out there to accomplish. Um, as soon as, as soon as you don't have that in your life, you're dying. I think that everyone needs to hear that. And thank so thank you for saying it. Cause when I'm sure if I said it, it wouldn't have as much impact. Um, where can people get a hold of you? If they, uh, if they wanted to reach out to you, can they reach out to you personally by email or you have a website? They can both. Um, I have a website. It's uh, www.jdobbins.com. And then on my website, is uh, an email, which is just simply j at jdobbins.com. And I, uh, I get messages all the time. I get, I get supportive messages. I get flattering messages. I get uh, messages of praise. Um, and I get messages from people who uh, want to take the time to sit down at their computer and tell me how much they uh, hate me. And how much they disrespect me. And I honestly, I try to answer all of them, whether they're good or bad. And I try to do it with some integrity and, and some humor at times and, um, and uh, try to do it honestly. That's awesome. It speaks volumes that you're willing to, you know, even, even those people that are haters out there, people that just want to stir the pot, you know, when you, when you respond in that type of way, 
it it takes it takes the wind out of their sails, right? <laughs> well, I think you know if someone is so uh, hateful towards me, and that and that hate is is so consuming of them, where they are going to take time from their day and sit down at their computer to type me a message to tell me about it. Um, I actually think I owe them a response. And and to be quite honest with you, I, I get it. I understand it. I don't expect everybody out there to love me or to appreciate what I did or understand what I did. Um, so, uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to send me a hate message, uh, I'll send something back to you. You might not like my response, but it's not going to be rude or disrespectful. I'm just going to answer, you know, I'm going to answer back. Yep. Awesome. Well, Jay, listen, I appreciate you taking the time again today. I've had a hell of a time talking with you. I've enjoyed it. Um, I hope that everybody listening has gotten some piece of actionable information out of it that they can take uh, take with them and help them with their careers. So thank you, sir, for joining us. Is there anything that you want to leave everybody? Is there any message or anything that you'd like to leave off with? Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me on your show. Thank you uh, for the audience, to for the patience to listen to our discussion. And just go out there, uh, especially to those in the law enforcement community. But if you're listening to this and you're not in the law enforcement community, man, go out there and just be, do everything you can to be amazing. Just there's days when every single thing is in your way, when every roadblock and every obstacle is in your way and just keep pushing to be amazing. As hard as that sounds, as hokey as that sounds, as corny as that sounds, if you can do that, man, you can actually end the day, even on bad days, with a smile on your face and some satisfaction of knowing, you know what, man, it didn't work out the way I wanted it to today, but I tried my best. I love it. I love it, man. That's a fantastic message. So I'm going to leave everybody off with that. I'm not going to say anything else. Thank you, sir, again for joining us. And hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. If you want to learn more about Jay, you can visit him at jdobbins.com. You can pick up the book, No Angel, or his second book, Catching Hell, by visiting the show notes page at thebreakdown.ca forward slash 014. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast player, or you can keep checking us out at thebreakdown.ca. We're really excited to announce our partnership with the 2020 Smile and I Smile conferences in June, taking place in Scottsdale, Arizona. More on that to follow. Check out our website. We're going to be putting stuff out there and on our social media as well. We'll talk to you next time on the Tactical Breakdown Podcast. Stay safe.